Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Melissa Jeltsin. I'm a senior reporter at The Huffington Post, where I cover domestic violence. And I'm also today's moderator. This event is presented by the Forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, jointly with The Huffington Post. The Forum is also streaming on their Facebook page. Our panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Michelle Williams, dean of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. L.Y. Marlowe, founder of Saving Promise, a national domestic violence prevention organization. James Mercy, director of the Division of Violence Prevention at the CDC. And Anke Huffler, a research officer in the Department of Economics at Oxford University and a consultant for the Copenhagen Consensus Center. This pro program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email <coughs> questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's hap happening on the forum site right now. We are gathered here today to discuss a major public health cri crisis that is all too often ignored and misunderstood, domestic violence. A note about language, we are using the terms domestic violence and intimate partner violence interchangeably during this discussion. One in three women and one in four men are victims of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And the majority of people who experience intimate partner violence do so before they turn 25. Let's look at a PSA from nomore.org that shows how the problem of domestic violence is so often hidden in plain sight. The video may look familiar to you as it aired during the Super Bowl last year. one operator 901, where's the emergency? 127, been there. Okay, what's going on there? I'd like to order a pizza for delivery. Ma'am, you've reached 911. This is an emergency line. Uh, large with half pepperoni, half mushroom. Um, you know you've called 911. This is an emergency line. Do you know how long it'll be? Okay, ma'am. Is everything okay over there? Do you have an emergency or not? Yes. And you're unable to talk because... Right, right. Okay, is there someone in the room with you? Just say yes or no. Yes. Okay, um... It looks like I have an officer about a mile from your location. Are there any weapons in your house? No. Can you stay on the phone with me? No. Uh, see you soon. Thank you. Such a powerful PSA. Michelle, do you want to share your thoughts with us? Sure. Thank you. Um, think about what you just saw and roll it up in aggregate. Okay. Um, what I'm going to try to do in the next two and a half to three minutes is to share with you the burden of domestic uh, violence rolled up at a population level. So before I start, let me just, for definitional purposes, um, describe domestic violence so that we're all talking about the same thing. It is a serious and preventable public health um, problem that affects, in the U.S. alone, 12 million Americans per year. As, um, as you've heard, intimate partner violence is all often used interchangeably um, with domestic violence. Intimate partner violence or domestic violence describes physical, sexual, or psychological harm by a current or former partner or spouse 
This type of violence can occur among heterosexuals or same-sex couples and does not require sexual intimacy. The problem cuts across social, religious, and cultural uh, lines. There is not a segment of society that is spared. And as you heard, one in three women in the U.S. experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetimes. And that proportion is even higher in some other regions of the world. The other thing you should know is that domestic violence begins, often begins at a very early age and commonly leads to adverse health consequences across the lifespan. It's estimated that somewhere upwards of 10% of school children report dating violence. And as you'll hear later on, the economic burden of this um, type of public health problem is enormous. In the U.S. alone, it's estimated that the cost uh, exceeds $8.3 billion a year. The impacts of, pub of domestic violence reverberates through families and includes, in, and includes impacts that transcend generations, across generations and in communities. As you'll hear later, uh, there are so many um, public health, physical, mental health, and economic repercussions that you'll learn more about in a few minutes. What tends to get lost in the statistics and what's so beautifully captured in that video that you just saw is the personal individual impact in real time. And I'm so pleased that L.Y. Marlowe is here to share her story, an intergenerational story uh, with us all today. Before I, I close, I'd just like to um, say that here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, we work to improve the lives of people through our research and our education, and it includes working to diminish the impact of domestic violence on the lives of millions in the U.S. and millions around the globe. To that end, our school is committed to joining a larger effort and establishing in partnership with others a learning laboratory to help address the serious um, domestic violence issues that persist, and I'll talk more about that later in the program. Great, thank you. L.Y., as Michelle noted, you have an extraordinary personal story to share. Would you share with us? Oh, yes. I, um, I come from a family of five generations of mothers and daughters that suffered and survived over 60-plus years of domestic violence and abuse. And it would actually be the story of my daughter's little girl named Promise that became the fifth generation in my family when she lay on the bed next to my daughter who was strangled by Promise's father. Um, I thank God that my daughter survived that strangulation, but one of the things that it really did for me was create um, an untethered level of urgency to do something. So I immediately uh, got my daughter to, and Promise to safety, but made a decision that I wanted to launch a national organization called uh, saving promise, uh, particularly after I had walked away from a 20-plus year corporate career. Um, I felt like not only did I have a voice to add, because if I can share my family story that could ultimately uh, break the silence and open up the conversation, um, that would be one accomplishment. But more importantly, I wanted to launch a national call to action with a focus on uh, prevention. Uh, to shift the uh, conversation from intervention to prevention for reasons that I would hope that uh, 
young women like my daughter would be prevented from getting in abusive relationships. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, there are so many people like your family that have been exposed to domestic violence. Um, let's take a look at another clip that just shows some of the sheer numbers in the U.S. And this clip was from the Huffington Post from a, a big project I did earlier this year. Jim, you tackle this problem from a national and global perspective. What are your observations? Well, I, I want to emphasize a, a few things. First, as we've already heard, this is, a, this is a really big problem, both in the U.S. and around the world. One out of three women in the U.S. experience intimate partner violence, some form during their lifetime, and one out of um, four men. Um, and when you look around the world, in some countries, that prevalence is even higher, and in some lower. But it's a huge problem around the world. But there's four things I think we really need to think about as we think about preventing and tackling this problem. One, um, as Melissa said, this is a hidden problem. Um, the women, it's a, it's a problem that causes, that cr creates a perception of shame. People are unwilling to talk about it oftentimes. It's what's so extraordinary about L.Y. and her story, why it's so important. Um, oftentimes, the consequences, the health consequences, the doctors don't connect them with the violence, and the victims themselves, the survivors, don't recognize they're connected. So it's hidden, and that complicates our, the, our challenge of trying to address this problem. Another really important aspect is that the, this problem pr starts really young, in young people. In the United States, for example, 70% of women experiencing intimate partner violence, physical intimate partner violence, first experienced it uh, at ages less than 25 years of age. So we really need to begin starting early as we think about prevention. Another problem has also, also already been mentioned is that there um, are a range of health consequences for this problem. Women that experience intimate partner violence are more likely to be physically injured, of course, but also to have mental health problems, including depression and anxiety disorders and PTSD. Uh, they're more likely to suffer infectious diseases, especially sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. Um, they're more likely to experience chronic diseases, even diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. So what that means is that actually if we can prevent intimate partner violence, it's strategic from a public health perspective because we can affect a range of health outcomes, not just one, but actually multiple health outcomes. And the final point is that there's collateral impacts of this problem, especially to children. Children who witness intimate partner violence um, suffer the same type of stress that causes health problems in, in women who experience it. Also, children in houses where there's households where there's intimate partner violence are more likely to be abused and neglected. So 
This, by any measure you choose, is an urgent problem, and we need to start taking action now. Thank you. One aspect of domestic violence that may be greatly underappreciated is social cost. Anka, you've written about this issue. What have you found? So this is joint work with um, Jim Fioron. Um, he's a political scientist in Harvard and I'm an economist. So we were asked by the Copenhagen Consensus about what does this problem cost the world? What does violence general, yeah, from whatever violence you can think of, from civil wars to terrorism to homicides to um, domestic violence against women and children? So unfortunately it's very bad data um, about um, um, violence against men worldwide, so we concentrated on, on women. So with the available data we had, we just sort of set about it as social scientists do and, and gathered the existing evidence and found very quickly that civil wars, the stuff you see on your, on your television screens every day, actually kills far fewer people than um, interpersonal violence. Yeah, so about six times as many people are killed uh, in homicides than in, in, in these collective types of violence. And um, homicide is predominantly a male problem. So most um, um, victims are male, 77%. Um, but um, out of the women, uh, it's already been touched upon, about 40% of um, victims worldwide are killed by their um, intimate partner, current or former intimate partner. Um, and when you actually compare the numbers, um, more women are killed by um, people they know than in, in civil war violence. Uh, so that sort of maybe shows you the sort of scale of the problem. And I think we've been able to sort of push the agenda um, globally that we should really try and do something about collective violence like civil war and terrorism. But I think we haven't yet been able to sort of push an agenda uh, for, uh, against domestic violence. Um, it's interesting that in um, these rates vary a lot across the world. Um, the evidence comes from um, surveys. So these are confidential surveys where women, uh, as I said, we don't have any evidence on men, sort of report what happens to them. And um, the poorest region in the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, seems to have the highest prevalence rates. So I would like to urge you to think of domestic violence not only as a human rights problem where your physical uh, integrity is compromised but also and a public health problem has already been stated but also as a development problem um, because um, these women um, have enormous problems throughout their life and never fulfill their sort of economic and social potential inside and outside um, of, of their homes. It's also an issue of fairness. Uh, if we concentrate on problems that ma mainly um, uh, are suffered by men, um, as we have at the moment on, on civil wars, then we're sort of not looking at the um, problems that affect women the most, which is domestic violence. Thank you. Great, thank you. Now let's turn the conversation to how we can help address some of these challenges. Last year, leaders from the public and private sectors gathered at Janssen Research and Development for a research summit on domestic violence prevention. Let's watch a short video of Dr. Husseini Manji of Janssen. He's a neuroscientist who helped organize the summit. He wanted to be here today, but was unable to come due to a scheduling conflict. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this important forum 
about the crisis of intimate partner violence. I trained as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist and can attest to the tragic effects of physical and psychological abuse, including possible lifelong mental and physical health problems. The need to prevent domestic violence is a human issue and a major societal problem. As a community, we have to take a stand against abuse and protect victims. We also need to support and conduct more research in this area. Last year, working with L.Y. Marlowe and Saving Promise, Janssen, the company I work for, hosted a summit with a group of public health experts and people from industry to begin a plan to study domestic violence. The group's goal was to better understand causes, why people become abusers, how to protect those vulnerable to domestic abuse, and what can be done to prevent it in our society. More research is key for defining the depth to which intimate partner violence affects us as individuals, families, and communities. We need to explore root causes and recommend evidence-based prevention strategies. What's clear is that the problem is too complex and too big for one entity to solve alone. What's most promising is that we're mobilizing now and taking steps to better understand the problem so that we can drive to solutions for future generations. Thank you. Michelle, you attended that summit. What were some of the results? Thanks. Um, First of all, I should say it was an amazing summit, largely because of the vast number of disciplines and experts that were engaged in this in, in this <clears throat> in the summit on the Janssen campus. It was a remarkable personal experience for me, for someone who's been studying domestic violence and women's health for years. One of the things that came through was the way to build an agenda going forward would require developing and sustaining that interconnectivity across the disciplines and across the sectors. And what came out of the summit was that we develop a learning laboratory that would drive decision-making processes around prioritizing research that needed to be done to fill the gaps, some of which you heard today, um, and also deliberately and very thoughtfully evaluate prevention efforts of the past so that we could sunset those that weren't working and bring to scale those that are working and continue to innovate and drive an agenda towards primary prevention, as L.Y. said. Sounds like it was a really interesting summit. It was a powerful <laughs> summit, and I think it was really made special because we had individuals from industry, the public sector, academia, mm -hmm. and we had a large number of not-for-profit um, NGOs working towards preventing primarily and secondarily violence and its impact on generations. Great. Jim, do you want to just talk a little bit about some of the most promising strategies to help prevent domestic violence? Sure. Um, well, one thing I need to say at the outset is we need a lot more research to better understand what actually works and what constitutes the best evidence. But actually, um, in the U.S., we, we've learned a lot over the past couple of decades. And I, I'll just mention very briefly sort of four or five 
really broad strategies that are really important and which there's some evidence associated with. One is teaching safe and healthy relationship skills. There are evidence-based school-based programs that we have in the United States for dealing this, particularly with teen dating violence, an important precursor of intimate partner violence in adults. Engaging influential adults and peers is another important strategy. For example, there's a strategy that engages coaches around helping with, with young boys, and uh, it's called um, moving men, boys to men. Another strategy is disrupting the developmental pathways that lead to intimate partner violence. We know that those who experience child maltreatment are more likely to be victims and perpetrators. So how do we disrupt that, that pathway from maltreatment to intimate partner violence? Create protective environments. We have ways of creating schools and workplaces that are more protective and safer for students and workers. Strengthening economic supports and reproductive autonomy Another example, because of the, of the economic connections with this problem and gender inequities. How do, we, how do we address those inequities that underlie this violence? And finally, um, while it's not primary prevention, it's very important, and that's supporting, supporting survivors to increase safety and uh, lessen harms. There are treatments and strategies that many, and actually evidence-based, that we can use for the survivors of this problem to help them. Okay. <coughs> What are some ways we can bridge the gap between the public and private sectors? I don't know, Ly, if you want to take that one. Yeah, I'm can. happy to take that. I think <laughs> you just uh, made music to my ears because mm -hmm. I, I think um, Michelle and both Jim um, and Anka as well um, spoke one common theme about the need to bring um, organizations, groups, and entities together, um, the cross-sector cross, uh, collaborations. Um, particularly between the public and private sector. Um, I think that one of the challenges right now is that there's a lot of wonderful work that's going on. So many organizations, advocates, policymakers, and the like um, are, are doing tremendous work, but we're all working in silos. You know, we're all working in just one piece of the pie, and we need to bridge the gap. We need to work more closely together under one movement, um, and we also need to look at, like Jim was saying, you know, uh, looking at what's working and how we capitalize. We don't want to reinvent the wheel, but we certainly need to also look at what's not working and figure out how we can put forward more progressive uh, evidence-based prevention strategies and policies and programs. And one of the biggest things that I, I think we ultimately need um, is greater public education and awareness. We really need to find ways to educate our public, and not just in time when there's, you know, a controversial news story or tragedy, but in times where we're, we're um, proposing public education at the grassroots level, in uh, schools, public and private schools, college campuses, uh, in the workplace, um, in um, our faith-based communities. I mean, we need to really look at this far and wide, and we need to impose meeting people where they live, learn, work, pray, and play, and where are they? Social media. Mm -hmm. We gotta meet this mm -hmm. problem at the hem of where it is, but also meet it where people are going to respond. Yeah, and there have been so many great social media conversations about domestic violence in the past few years with like why I stayed, why I left. Right. Um, so there really has been a, a big conversation going on where people are wanting to share their stories, which has been great. 
Um, Anka, for you, what are some examples around the globe of programs that are working to address domestic violence? Okay, so it is a very, very difficult topic to, uh, to address. Um, I think fundamentally norms have to really shift. Um, so the attitudes of a lot of uh, men that women belong to them and they can do whatever they like to them needs to be changed. So from attitudinal surveys, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, we know um, that women as well as men agree that um, a husband has got the right to hit his wife if she leaves the children unattended, if she burns the food, if she's unfaithful and so on. So. Um, um, these norms have to shift, and they only shift very slowly over time. Laws in themselves don't necessarily cut it, yeah, because there can be quite a gap between the sort of laws you have in a country and what actually what practices happen on the ground. So you, you, that that is not a fix. I think um, it's maybe important to set a signal, send a signal, and sort of say this is not what we as a society want to do, but it doesn't necessarily prevent it. So I think it's the sort of conversations, it's the media. So for example, um, you can have um, messages uh, very often to men. Uh, there's a, a Sasa, which is Swahili for now. Um, it's a very positive message to men in Uganda um, to sort of say to be a real man, you don't hit your wife, you talk things through um, and to sort of set an example to your children and to sort of make the domestic sphere safe, uh, sphere of safe and um, uh, a place for everybody to be. In the United Kingdom there was recently, this is a soap opera, a long-running soap opera on the radio where they sort of just put in a um, a story about domestic abuse. And there was huge discussion in the United Kingdom. 20% um, more calls to domestic helplines. And um, even though this was a totally fictional story, people just wanted to donate. So just giving through just giving 100,000 pounds was sort of uh, made available. And there was a lot of discussion. So these types of programs, South Africa's had some and so on, and they didn't cost much money. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the um, the benefits you can sort of get from these types of exist, you know, it's an existing soap opera, and you just sort of embed a story can be enormous. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, what resources are really needed at this point to better support survivors? And that can go to any of you who are burning with a desire to answer it. Well, let me start by saying what is so common across all of our remarks so far is the need to break down the silos, uh, to break the silence, and to make this crisis less hidden. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the resources necessary for that will certainly include monetary uh, resources. Mm -hmm. But I also think we have to use the technology and the skills we have in a disruptive way that literally breaks the silos, the silence, the hidden. I also think um, the resources, again, may not necessarily be fiscal, but a change in attitude. We heard so eloquently about laws. I can speak to countries and municipalities with beautifully written laws, well-intentioned laws on the books, but without accountability and responsibility and attention to enforcement, uh, those laws haven't meant much to women and families. Um, Jim, would you talk a little bit more, you touched on it briefly, but about how kids are affected by growing up witnessing domestic violence? Sure. Um, one of the things that uh, scientists are talking now about is that we understand that 
exposure to violence, particularly as a child, but even through young adulthood, can actually change brain, the brain. Mm -hmm. that, that, that what, what scientists are calling toxic stress can actually alter the brain structure in different ways that increases risk for health problems down the road. So even witnessing violence, not experiencing it directly in a child, can actually have these longer-term effects on health because of the, the stress's impact on changing brain structure in ways that increase their likelihood to engage in risk behaviors, uh, abusing drugs, overeating, and other things that can, can lead to other health problems. So, and when you accumulate these things, like if a child s witnesses his intimate partner violence in the home and is also abused, that even makes greater mm -hmm. likelihood that they'll experience health problems down the road. So it can have a profound impact on children, and it's really an important part of this problem that we need to pay attention to. Great. So, you know, we're talking about solutions to domestic violence and how to prevent it in the first place. How do we actually evaluate these interventions to see if they're effective? Open to all. Well, I, um, I mean, people around the world and in the United States are using the methods we use for other public health problems, random controlled trials, uh, um, also um, e uh, ecological type analyses, also um, time series analyses. There's all sorts of methods that we can apply to this problem that we've used successfully to find out what works for other public health problems. So we have a great deal at our disposal, and there's no reason we can't apply it effectively in this area. I would completely agree, and I think what is essential to make that happen is a commitment to advancing the quality and quantity of data that we collect on this topic. And it's part of making it less hidden, but also allow us to measure more the burden, the impact, and evaluate the results of intervention and prevention efforts. Um, how, I'm just thinking about what can be done um, at each level. How can workplaces help in this battle of, of preventing domestic violence and supporting survivors? I, I think, and, and let me speak to that from, from two angles. One is my personal time spent in corporate America, for example, because I mentioned that I was, I, I, I walked away from that career to do what I do now, and then my side from being a survivor coming from five generations. I, I think that um, the private sector industry in corporate America has an indelible opportunity to really be on the front lines of this. Um, just as with how we offer um, education and tr skill-based training, we can use those types of platforms to educate our employees on public health issues and particularly uh, domestic and intimate partner violence. One of the reasons why I think that is so critical for the private sector is because at the end of the day, guess who's paying for it, <laughs> right? We're paying for it through our law enforcement, we're paying for it through our taxes, we're paying for it through our health care policies and programs. So it is important um, that the public, private, and corporate sector get on the front lines of this and be an ally to help us to find solutions around prevention, evidence-based prevention, public education, and um, help us push it out to their employees because 52 plus percent of people are in the workplace. This is where people are mass coming together and this is where we can have the greatest impact. From a personal side, 
Um, and I'll just use the story of my daughter. When she was strangled by Promise's father, she didn't come to me until nearly she almost died twice. But what if she did? She was working at a very prominent corporation. What if they did have some practices and policies and programs in place that she felt safe? Because again, we also got to think of the element of safety. People need to feel safe that they can go somewhere because a victim that tries to leave a violent situation is uh, more likely to be killed or harmed worse. So where is she that she's not in the shadow of her perpetrator? She's at work. Mm -hmm. He's not in her workplace. So that's a safe haven for her to go and talk to someone and to share her story and try to get help. So I think it is, it is not only urgent, but it is necessary that the public, private, and corporate sector get involved. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Um, <clears throat> Anka, I know you talked about this a little bit, but how can we take advantage of the interconnections between different types of violence? Um, so far, everybody sort of stressed that different experts sort of study different aspects of the problem. Um, and it's quite intuitive that a lot of these types of violence is, uh, violence is connected. So typically, uh, households where there is intimate partner violence, um, the children suffer too. Yeah? So very often they are actually abused as well. Um, so, but what about the sort of um, um, large-scale political violence um, that also happens, you know, how does that affect domestic violence? What about these families that had to up sticks and leave Syria? Um, what is going on now that they are sort of sitting in these refugee camps and the men are coming and going or the men are, are um, fighting all the time or they're dead? Um, what happens to, uh, to, to the women there? What happens after a civil war ends? So that we've got, luckily, a lot of countries that have left civil war behind them, Mozambique, Angola, El Salvador, for example. So what happens in these households a generation on where men have witnessed a lot of violence and a lot of sexual violence in, in, in war? And in particular, the sort of overlap between physical and sexual violence, I think, is an important um, um, matter to study. Great. Elway, just one more to you before we move on to some online questions. Um, I know we talked about it in our earlier discussion, but I'd just love to hear a little bit more from you about why it's so important to break the silence and what that does. Well, um, why it is so important to break the silence, and I'll, I'll share one of the questions that I'm often most asked about um, my story and, um, and having found it saving promise, is how is it possible, even conceivable, that domestic violence can perpetuate in one family for five generations. And it took me a long time to figure out an answer to that. And I didn't have to look that far and that deep. It was because of one word, mm -hmm. silence. My grandmother didn't talk to my mother. My mother didn't talk to me. And I'm not ashamed to say that I did not talk to my daughter until promise became the fifth generation. So silence is perpetuated in every facet of our communities, in our homes, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our laws, in the military, in our faith-based community, every angle, one of the reasons why this issue is as prevalent as it is, is because of silence. Great, thank you. 
Lisa, do we have some questions? Yes, thanks, Melissa. We do. We have questions coming in on Facebook and Twitter, so I'll take a few of those here. Um, this is a question from Facebook. What can be done to empower male victims to break the stigma of male victims speaking out? Anyone want to jump in, Jim? Well, I, I, I think it's very much the same as what Ella Y was just talking about. Um, we need to break the silence, not just for female victims, but also for male victims. And, um, and uh, some of the same strategies that would be applicable to males as well as females. Um, the barriers may be greater for males sometimes to talk about this issue as a victim. But nevertheless, getting it out from behind the silence is, is a critical step. Great, thank you, thank you. Um, here's another one from Facebook. What's your view on the gender intersectionality, interaction between race and gender, and domestic violence, and how can this be tackled from a public-private perspective in the U.S. and globally? Well, I, I'll try <coughs> to tackle that one. I think it's really important, and that's why I emphasized in my opening remarks that um, domestic violence the definition is broad, that it can impact same-sex as well as heterosexual couples, that it impacts teens, um, victims of dating violence, and that uh, domestic violence is prevalent across socioeconomic age, religion, and cultural uh, boundaries. Um, it really is a universal, pervasive, highly prevalent uh, public health issue across all of the sectors that we could be thinking about. Great, thank you. But we do have some evidence, if I may, um, to suggest that poverty is really important. So I think it's not so much the race or cultural question for me, because um, you know when we say it's certain religions that sort of make it easier for um, domestic abuse to happen, I think that's not quite right. It's a sort of tradition. It's it's become more a customary interpretation of certain religions um, that um, help to subjugate women uh, mainly. But it's not per se a race or religion issue for me. It's it's more of a question of of customs that have been perpetuated in poverty. That's a great point. Thank you. Thank you. I'll do two more from online, and then we'll see if we have a question from the audience. Um, this is from Facebook um, as well. I understand responding to domestic disputes can sometimes put police officers and other first responders in danger for their lives. Can anything be done to improve training for these first responders to reduce the risk of death or injury? I know that, uh, that police are very concerned about that, and that is one of the pro most uh, likely ways that police officers can be killed in the line of duty. So. Um, and, it, um, and I know that they're incorporating this in the training for police officers around the country. I don't know a lot about the details of that, but uh, certainly an important issue to address. So you think that it's becoming more prevalent in the training yes. for the officers? Particularly in light of all the concern now about <coughs> violence involving law enforcement officers, both in, in, in their causing it and as well as being victims of it, for sure. Improved training on screening for lethality in a, a lot of different areas across the country. So not necessarily the the police safety, although I'm sure that the lethality screening would help with that. But the, in many jurisdictions, they're now asking questions of the survivor and asking about specific risk factors, like have you been strangled before, which we know is an indicator of future domestic homicide. 
Um, does your abuser have access to a gun? Mm. Does he consistently threaten your life? And then going through, th this is all based on Jackie Campbell's research, and then saying, okay, this person's in extreme danger. I'm gonna connect them with a domestic violence resource so that, and verbally tell them your life is in danger, and, and that's been shown to be quite helpful. So a lot of places are using that. So police are really, are learning about the things that can make a situation more dangerous, both for, I would assume, both for the victim and for them when they respond. In the United Kingdom, for example, all domestic incidences, the police goes through a questionnaire with all members of the household afterwards. It's um, the acronym is DASH, Domestic Abuse, Stalking and Honor. And um, they do it for exactly the reason that's been sort of previously mentioned, that typically when women are killed by their intimate partner, there has been previous contact with the police. And so if you have a systematic account um, as Melissa was just saying, um, then you can sort of try intervene um, uh, earlier. And this is then before the situation becomes lethal. But of course, firearms are not an issue in the United Kingdom, so um, because there's no private gun ownership um, to speak of, you know, or handgun ownership. Also, I'd say in New York, um, which is where I live, the domestic violence incident reports there that the police have to fill out have lethality factors on them, which is a new thing. I think they rolled it out a year ago or something. So they're also, it's, it's built into the incident report that they're asking about whether there's a gun, whether there's um, all of the, the known lethality factors. Thank you. I'll, I'll do one more um, from online. Actually, this is from email um, from Jillian, Michael, and Katie, who work as consultants for a Washington, D.C.-based domestic violence resource center. What can be done for minority and or immigrant communities, such as Asian Pacific Islanders, who have limited data available about prevalence of domestic violence within their communities? How can we design and implement effective, culturally sensitive interventions for these often over Overlook groups. I think I think um, I think that touches on a key point when you think of um, um, communities um, that are often overlooked, um, and oftentimes they also feel that they're the um, the forgotten outside of children. Um, that's another demographic that is the forgotten. Um, because you have so many challenges to overcome. You have cultural barriers, you have language barriers, you have some, in some situations, poverty. Um, and so I think that though there needs to be greater um, prevention and public education and awareness across the platform, we really need to study those demographics that typically have other challenges and barriers um, that uh, we often don't uh, think about because we're looking at it through a narrow lens. I also think it's an opportunity to look at um, areas that intersect uh, with intimate partner violence. That's really key. We're learning, for example, that children who grow up in a violent home tend to become bullies. So we're dealing with the issues of bullying. Um, human trafficking is another area. I mean, that is a huge uh, issue right now that I see us beginning to shine the spotlight on. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what is the connection between human, fact, human trafficking and intimate partner violence? Because one of the things that many people don't understand is that oftentimes women who end up in a human trafficking situation was, um, was charmed through an intimate partner, an intimate partner that sort of lured them 
and 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 um, and and was able to gain their trust in order to become a victim of human trafficking. Let me just add to that um, to Ly's response that you know one of the things that I took away from the summit, which was very powerful, um, right after the summit, we had mayor's offices calling and asking us if we could hold the next summit in their mm -hmm. communities, in their cities. Mm -hmm. And we spent an awful lot of time at that summit talking about, you know, being able to share best practices. Best practices in estimating the burden, the physical impact, the mental health impact, the prevalence of the problem in different communities. I asked you earlier on to talk, to think about aggregate. Aggregation is good, but not necessarily sufficient to really begin to highlight the unique aspects, uh, dimensions, drivers of domestic violence at a community level. And so, you know, I think one of the ways that we can do this is allow for a space for experts to share best practices. And in this case, specific to the question would be doing a survey to estimate the burden, but also hopefully taking that further and identifying interventions, prevention efforts that work in communities with similar demographic or other profiles. Great, thank you so much. Do we have questions in the audience? Yeah, right here. Hi, first of all, I just want to thank all the panelists for the important work you're doing in this area, and especially LY for sharing your story. Um, I'm Danielle Coppola, I'm from Janssen Research and Development, and um, I actually also work on a uh, nonprofit in locally in Mercer County, New Jersey, that provides shelter and services to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And my question to you is, what can corporations do to help? I'd be curious to hear from Jim on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear from the CDC. <laughs> well, I think, I think it alludes to the strategy that I mentioned. One of the strategies is create protective environments. And, and I know I spoke to this just a, a minute ago, but I think corporations can do a lot to educate supervisors how to, you know, this is a hidden problem, right? How do supervisors know when, when something like this is going on in, in the lives of somebody that they, that they oversee? Um, because of the impact on corporations in terms of lost days of productive work, it's got to be enormous. Um, so I think there's a lot they can do in training, incorporating things like this into the management training that, that many of us get. Um, also, reaching out into the community. I, I would love for corporations to do more to reach out into the communities in which they, in which they find themselves, and um, like you do in, in Mercer, but, uh, and help partner with, with community-based organizations that are addressing this problem. So those are just two things I think would be really valuable. I think the role modeling is so important. Um, you know, I'm gonna go back to the summit uh, when I got a telephone call from the head of neurosciences at one of the Fortune 500 companies in the country, in the world, um, it was, you know, a drop the mic moment. And it was because it is a corporation that cares about a public health problem. And I think that is something that is powerful and that subtly but so powerfully sends the message that we're all in this together. Whether you are the social worker on the front line or the neuroscientist in the corner office, that 
this is a problem that impacts all of us. It is complex and it will require multiple disciplinary input as well as multi-sectoral input to address the problem. But for me, I think, importantly in this conversation, it was leadership by example that corporate leaders came to the table to talk about a public health problem. Do we have more questions in the audience? If we don't, oh, I, I think see I'm one going right to... Um, oh, we'll take one more and then we'll go back to our I'm Marcia Castro, I'm, I'm faculty here at the school. Um, so one of the things that I think is really important is the cultural issues that was mentioned here before. So it's the perception that it's okay uh, for a woman, for example, to be hit by the husband or so on. And, and this is reflected, for example, in the work of community health workers that go to a house, they see some violence going on, but they don't report because they are also afraid that they can also have some violence because they live in the community. So my question is, do you, are you aware of any success, for example, that was, uh, you know, that managed to overcome this barrier of the cultural issue? And if you do, can you please share with us? There's one that I'm aware of um, that is from Peru, and I, I, I didn't read the report, but I've heard the narrative of how powerful um, of a intervention it was in disrupting ongoing violence. Um, this was uh, a program where NGO um, taught community members in a very poor area of Lima to whenever they heard screaming, um, that was indicative of domestic violence, for them to start making noise to raise the awareness of people in the community, in the immediate vicinity, to be as disruptive as possible, to do two things. One, uh, stop the violence from going on, but also call to the attention of the police force. Um, I had never seen the, that program evaluated, but I have heard in national and international talks th this program being replicated in other places. One of the, your question is so important and it's something that L.Y. And, and Jim and many of the other members who attended the summit talk about, is how can we put together a clearinghouse of what's been tried and what's worked and have the best possible evidence to make decisions around sunsetting those that don't and bringing to scale those that work. Your, your question is so important, mm -hmm. but we don't quite have our arms around the data to start to really do the evidence-based decision-making and invest in those prevention efforts that work. I think we have to be really careful with um, ex making excuses in terms of culture because I think it's also been used, well, it's, it's the norm in this, in, in this community and, and let's not um, target it in the same way as mainstream society. And I think that's wrong and I think we are sort of really as, as uh, high income societies at least begin to sort of understand, no, this is, this is for everybody. This cuts across and we should also be not afraid to sort of say, okay, you are recent arrivals to this society um, or you are marginalized old parts of the society or whatever it might be, we will, um, you know, prosecute this in the exact same way as mainstream, you know, as, as 
as, as, as the mainstream. So there should be no exceptions. And I think in the past, at least in the United Kingdom, social workers and police have had different yardsticks, and that's wrong. Great. Thank you for your questions. So to wrap up here, I'm just going to ask each panelist if they can share one key message or a policy takeaway. Michelle, would you like to start? Yes, let me start with a, a public health takeaway, and that is this is one of the biggest problems that face global health, public health of the 21st century. It's complex. Its impacts are enormous. Its repercussions are felt not only in one generation but across multiple. And I think that the way forward requires us to work as teams, and public health is, I like to say, a big tent that brings individuals with expertise, training, and talents that can fit under this tent. And with good data and with good partnerships, um, I think we can address this problem from a prevention standpoint, which is what LY holds us accountable to. Awesome. LY? You know, one of the things that helps me to stay focused on what's needed is I created a, a, a metaphor for myself um, around the acronyms of the word BEG. BEG. B-E-G and plural S. And what's in BEG is what is critically needed um, to, to solve this global crisis. And one is uh, B, breaking the silence and getting people to talk about it, not just when there's a tragedy or celebrity or athlete, but in our everyday conversations. The second on the E is evidence-based prevention strategies. We must, must, must lead with prevention. We need to um, shift the conversation from intervention to prevention and be more proactive than reactive. And then thirdly, for the G is greater public awareness and education. I think that is key. I think that's half the battle because no one organization, entity, and even a collective of such can solve this. We need the grassroots community involved, and the only way we can get them involved is greater public education and awareness. And then finally, S, is we must stop working in silos. We have to look at cross-sector collaborations, bringing the public and private sectors together, and bringing every, everyone together under one movement. Hard to do, but important. Very important. Jim? Well, I think they just mentioned many of the ones. <laughs> you're, you're, you're out. <laughs> That's but it. But let me talk about another aspect of silos, and that is I think um, we don't recognize the interconnections between different types of violence clearly enough. Um, like CDC gets us money for violence prevention in silos. They give us money for child maltreatment. They give us money for intimate partner violence, youth violence, and yet all these problems share common risk and protective factors. Perpetrators often perpetrate multiple forms of violence. Victims often suffer multiple forms. They share common consequences, and yet we're dealing with them, as we've said, as if they're separate issues. Mm -hmm. We need to come together and look at how we can be more efficient and address these problems in the cross-cutting way that LY just spoke to. I would say that we still have to gather a lot more evidence, uh, as the others have sort of said, uh, in order to come up with um, prevention, but also with useful uh, and um, life-enhancing treatment strategies for um, victims and survivors. Um, as an academic, I'd also say that interdisciplinary research is not rewarded. And my plea is to sort of really find mechanisms to um, bring academics from different disciplines together who want to work on these issues. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you to all our panelists. To our viewers, please continue the conversation on the forum website, forumhsph.org. And note the next forum coming up will examine the health policy implications of the upcoming presidential election. And that will take place on November 3rd at 12.30 p.m. Thank you all for being here. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.